0: As a business, at whatever stage of growth we're at at the moment, what is the hardest problem we are facing? And is there an application of content marketing that can help with that? You should always be led by whatever the problem is towards the growth, towards the channel you wanna pick.
1: You're listening to Content Logistics, a podcast for B2B marketers looking to build a content engine that drives revenue. In each episode, Camille Trent interviews the marketers behind the best content marketing flywheels and uncovers the tactical aspects of content production from first draft to first customer. Welcome to another episode of Conta Logistics. I'm your host, Camille Trent, and this episode is brought to you by the great Tristan and Justin over at Motion. They are the ones who produce this podcast to cut up all the clips for me, who do the quotes. Basically, everything that you see, they have helped me create. I basically just sit here and talk to smart people. That is my job. And I'm not complaining. So... A couple of weeks ago, I interviewed Ryan Law. He's the VP of content over at Animals. And first off, I just really like that title because VP of content, you don't see it very much. We see a lot of VP growth, VP marketing, don't see a lot of VP content. So excited about that. And then also Animals. Animals is like one of the best content marketing agencies out there. Been following their stuff for a while. They have some good strategies on content marketing in general, but also just deep, like insightful category content, as I like to put it, that is is worth reading. So not just an SEO agency that makes transactional content, but a lot of thought, I think, into the types of of stuff that they create. So without further ado, I will turn the time over to Ryan. Welcome everybody to Content Logistics. I'm really excited about today's episode. I have the Ryan Law. So, if you are on Twitter, you will you will probably recognize that name. If you're on the marketing Twitter, there, he goes pretty deep, like into content marketing and specifically content strategy. And is the VP of Content at Animals, uh, which is like one of the most well known, I think, content marketing agencies in SaaS. So, without further ado, uh, welcome, Ryan.
0: Yeah, thank you for having me. And uh, honestly, I feel like I'm with the Camille Trent as well, because I've been following you on LinkedIn for the longest time. So it's nice to connect and talk to you as well. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, well, hopefully, hopefully we can uh, swap some tips and tricks about Twitter and LinkedIn, because I'm I'm barely on Twitter. And someone joked the other day about like, if you at me, like I'll respond in like two months. <laughs> like that's about <laughs> like how often I check my like Twitter DMs. But uh, luckily, I, I checked and we were able to to get in contact. So Looking forward to this to kind of just dive right into it. The the problems like that I'm seeing is on Twitter, on LinkedIn, there are people saying like it's black and white, right? Like SEO is dead. You should be all in on social. Why aren't you Why aren't you building your email audience? So everyone has a perspective and usually reasons uh, like financial stake, like in their opinion on that, right? But the reality is that it comes down to your resources, your go-to-market plan your business type on what type of content strategy or what channel is going to work best for you. So I think oftentimes we think like the channel is the content marketing strategy and like if you're not on the hottest channels like you are dumb when in reality it's uh it's about like where is your audience and in going backwards from there. So wanted to kind of just kick it off by saying like what problems like are you seeing when people approach their content strategy? like Whether it's clients or other content marketers you talk to, like where do you see them go wrong?
0: Well, I think you make a really good point in the sense that social media in particular does reward very binary, very black and white statements about what is best, what is amazing. When the sad reality of content marketing is it's just very, very nuanced and situational and sometimes a little bit complicated. And probably the thing I see people do most is approach content marketing from this kind of Channel first perspective. They start by thinking, right, we want to do SEO. How do we do that? Or we want to do thought leadership. What's the process for getting started? And there's actually this huge missing step right at the beginning, which is as a business, at whatever stage of growth we're at at the moment, what is the hardest problem we are facing? And is there an application of content marketing that can help with that? You should always be led by whatever the problem is towards the growth, towards the channel you want to pick. And that kind of nuance, that conversation, I don't see much of that happening because the social media algorithms don't reward it. It's too uh, too complicated and too nuanced. So I see a lot of that happening. And even then, potentially just not being aware of like the breadth of the toolkit we have available to us as content marketers. And I've been doing this a long time now, like 11 years maybe. And for the longest time, I just thought SEO was content marketing and vice versa. Like, I didn't know there was a difference between those and I didn't know there were applications of content beyond just ranking for keywords. So uh, yeah, joining animals, learning that big eye-opener and it meant we have a slightly bigger toolkit to help customers with and to use ourselves.
1: Yeah, no, I I love that. I, I posted like the other day specifically about this of uh, we've gotten so wrapped up in this idea of like specialization of like this person does this, this person does that, that it's like, no like social media there's social media marketing and then there's content marketing and they're completely separate when the reality is like to me like if it's content uh if if there's actual like content that's explaining something that goes deep or that lets something click in a way like that is a A form form of like content marketing there's different channels and like ways of going about it so it's interesting to see like how content marketing the definition is evolving because i think you're right at one point like it was A content marketer would only do SEO or would only do like a certain type of long form writing. So I think we'll get a lot into like how content marketing is changing in this and how like your strategy uh, might need to change with that as well. So let's just go like right into the logistics of this. So what kinds of pieces does animals prioritize? Let's kick this off, what, what kind of pieces do you prioritize? And then what kind of pieces do you tell your clients to prioritize and why?
0: Yeah, I love this question, because I feel like it's something I have to explain through the sales process quite often, because I think Animals is well known for thought leadership content. That was what drew me to the blog. That was why I read it, because it was this interesting type of content I'd never seen before. It wasn't informed by keywords in the first instance. It was informed by like personal experience and opinion and correcting you know misunderstandings and mistakes that we saw in the industry. And that I think a lot of people assume we do that because it's the best type of content. Above all others, every company should in some capacity do thought leadership and we, you know, maybe we think that's the best type of content. That's not at all the case, like not even remotely. I was just looking at some data that we pulled for our last benchmark report. A really good way to refute that idea is actually that I think it was 85% of all the traffic we generated for our customers uh, in the last, yeah, 2021, I think it was, 85% of that came from organic search. So really, in most cases, not driven by thought leadership. And the simple point there is that we are a content marketing agency. Our business model, our unit economics, our go-to-market strategy needs to be very different to a lot of the companies we classically work with, which are quite often big B2B enterprise SaaS companies. At Animals, for example, you know we have quite a high average contract value companies that come to us generally spend a good chunk of money with us and that means we don't need the volume that a company that's selling you know five dollar a month app subscriptions need we can have a much smaller target audience on the blog um, and that works for us that is profitable that's the right business model and we also generally work with like really discerning experienced marketers so like cmos and founders So our content has to be particularly discerning and thoughtful. So the trade-off we're making is that we're sacrificing lots of volume and having far fewer people come to our blog than probably most content marketing agencies experience in service of basically a better engagement, trying to attract more qualified people, getting the most experienced marketers in the world to come to our blog and talk to us. In terms of what we recommend to customers, thought leadership like that is one tool in that toolkit. We sometimes do work with companies that have similar business models and actually for them thought leadership is a great thing to do sometimes early stage founders are a great example of that in their cases building their personal brand is one of the most valuable things they can do because maybe they're trying to raise funding maybe they want to communicate their vision for the industry and all of that is more important and more immediate than generating a bunch of search traffic but that's not always the case, obviously. Some companies come to us and they just want as much organic traffic as possible. That is totally the right thing to do. Their whole business model is predicated on getting hundreds of thousands of people in at the top of the funnel so that that filters through into um, enough revenue to grow a business.
1: Nice. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of gold in there. So I almost want to like, now that we have those as benchmarks, you've been talking about consulting business, um, which is animals, and then also like a SaaS business, and kind of like the why behind, okay, you have a higher ACV, so you, you don't need the volume, right? But a lot of your customers, it sounds like, have more of a volume play being probably more product-based businesses like SaaS in general, right? And so that explains like a lot of the why and like how you should think about your content strategy. But I want to break down like even deeper into that why. So let's like, almost like build this from scratch, right? So let's say it's a a software company because I think that's going to be like the most common use case for people. So you're a software company. What are the next questions that you're asking me maybe as a client about my business model to determine where you're going to start with content?
0: Probably two factors I think are the most immediate and most important. So one of them is average contract value. How much on average are people spending with you? Because obviously the point of a business is that you serve a market you build something great but you also get enough revenue from doing that to hire people and have a company and create something that didn't exist before so that is the kind of core constraint the core unit economics how much on average do people spend with you because then you, you can work out how many people you need to come and buy something from you and that's the start of that calculation probably the other part of that is the buying process so how do they go about spending that money in some cases that can be an immediate thing you know if i'm buying like a i have a pen in my hand so if i was looking for a pen i may not even need a pen i may not have this you know whole buying process i may literally just see a pen on the internet and i will just buy it because it's low stakes enough that i don't mind doing that at the other end of the spectrum there are companies where maybe they'll close five customers a year and those accounts are they can be millions of dollars And the total number of people that even exist in the world that are capable of buying those products is tiny. It could be like in the hundreds, for example, and the odds of them Googling about their problems and using that as a mechanism for purchase are basically non-existent. So working out where your company fits within those two extreme cases, those two variables, that's a really good way of working out like, where do these people hang out? How often do I have to engage with them? What kind of content do they need from me? And which, yeah, which distribution channels are going to be the best to do that?
1: Yeah, that's great. That's like, that's a really nice breakdown of SaaS specifically. So I'm going to like ask that same question for consulting, right? So like, to me, there's a few different core like consulting models of there's like the agency model. And then there's kind of like the solopreneur type type model. So let's first like walk through consulting. If you have like an agency style business, or I think this still applies to, you know, a local like service-based business, how would you think about going about marketing?
0: I guess agencies are kind of interesting because you can do it different ways. And I think very much the status quo of how most agencies generate a lot of their business, certainly how I thought most agencies did it was inbound marketing. So the case in point, like the agency I co-founded I did the traffic thing. I tried to rank for as many keywords as I possibly could, get as much traffic into the site because I very much bought into the inbound ethos and I thought that was how we would grow. And I know some agencies do do that and actually grow on the back of that. They get lots of people in at the top of the funnel. And then I think the key process there is having really good like lead qualification, lead scoring. Because the problem we had when I did this was basically drowning my sales team in this instance, one person, I'm very sorry, Martin, with way too many like terrible leads, terrible contacts that just weren't a good fit. But if you've got a good process in place to like automate that and filter that down to the handful of people that are probably going to be a good use case, then I could see that working. But when you look at all the agency blogs, they all do that. They all try and rank for the, all the content marketing keywords, all the SaaS growth keywords, and it all just looks samey and terrible. So I know the impetus behind the animals blog was always to just not write that stuff, let other people do it. And we'll focus on the more interesting, more qualified stuff, which you know I talked about earlier. So I think in that case, the same constraints apply in the sense that there are not that many people that are probably going to buy from you. It's a relatively small market relative to you know, consumer markets, but you can reach those small people either by going big with content and traffic and then lead qualification or else by being very direct and, I suppose, more efficient with it. For solopreneurs, I'd say that the target audience is probably the same, but the difference here is how much you can actually spend on that. Because obviously, if you're an agency, you would most likely have a bigger budget and that will unlock some different types of content that you couldn't do as a solopreneur. So I think the content efficiency angle as a solopreneur is probably the most important aspect of this. If I was doing that, I would focus solely on thought leadership, and I'd probably try and distribute it in places where I knew my target audience hung out lots. I want them to understand that, you know, I'm an expert. I know this stuff. I want to demonstrate my experience and my the success I've gotten for people like them. I wouldn't bother going broad at all. I'd go as, like, focused and niche down as I possibly could and probably spend loads of time hanging out on, like, uh, Slack groups and little Twitter threads and things like that.
1: Yeah, no, this is great. Okay. So you, I think touched on several different factors that I'll then like recap now. So we can think about this for the rest of the episode in terms of what types of things should, if you're listening, you be considering as a solopreneur, as a, uh, as an agency owner, or as like a SaaS business. And it really like boils down to like, are you going to play the volume game or are you going to have like a higher ACD And are you going to play more of like the thought leadership game? And so in other words, like it comes down to your, your go to market and like, what what are you selling? Because those in general, like if you look at just economic supply and demand, like those are two ways that you can approach it. You, you can be everything to everyone and try and just have like a large TAM go for the whole market or have like a tiny sliver of that, but then be able to be like very focused and, and do like thought leadership to one audience. So one thing that I want to recap, like for people listening is like your specific use case for animals you're thinking about it in terms of like the audience, like what types of content does like my audience prefer to consume? And I think it's probably fair to say that a content marketer is willing to to read a longer piece or just read in general, maybe like than uh, your average like consumer. And so for that reason, like you can probably still like get, get away uh, with that or like approach it that way. Whereas like another type of consumer, so let's say a developer maybe uh, is going to have like a a slightly different um, format that's going to be preferable to them. Same thing with sales, like same thing with CS. And so thinking about like how your audience prefers to consume content And how they currently interact with content, right, like is actually like pretty smart. So I don't know if you have any thoughts like around that specifically, but wanting to make sure that I keep revisiting, it comes back to the customer, like what type of customer and how do they like to consume content?
0: Yeah, I love that. Very much the way animals grew, and it still does grow in many ways, like word of mouth is still a big thing. And that's typically we do a good job with content marketing for a customer often like the cmo of a you know series b startup something like that something in that region and that person has colleagues and peers at other companies that go wow i, I love what you've done with the content how did you do that you know oh you do it with an agency can you introduce us so we have this kind of core growth that comes from that demographic like very experienced savvy in some cases, cynical marketing people because they've done all this before. They know how it works. They know the industry. They're beholden to business metrics. Very no-nonsense. And the entire impetus of the Animals blog and the format we use is basically, what do those people care about? Because if you think about, if we want to write about content marketing, because these people do, in some cases, care about content marketing, you can do anything from writing content 101 stuff, how do you search optimise a blog post, all the way through to some like really nuanced, interrogative reflection on the models that impact like SEO. So a lot of the stuff we've written on the blog is where is search heading? What are the incentives created by the current search model and how can companies differentiate from that? We basically just try to solve the hardest problems that these people are thinking about. And I think sometimes like length is a necessary part of that because hard problems probably require long answers in some cases.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's great. So I I think it's uh, just a testament to as I'm reading it, I'm like, oh, a writer wrote this, you know, you're you're like thinking about it and you're connecting with the creator because you're like this person like gets me right. Or like this person is the expert, like in this case, which is, you know, advantage that you have uh, is like, you know, writers talking to, to writers, marketers talking to marketers. And so being able to have that in-house expertise is like kind of a, the next thing I wanted to talk about, because that I think is a determining factor on what you choose as well. So uh, to break it down, like you mentioned, high ACV versus low ACV, that being like a a huge factor. And I think that goes into like, are you sales led? Are you product led? Right. Because can you even afford to be sales led if you have too low of an ACV? Like probably not. Right. So there's that. And then from that, there's like land and expand. So if you're product led, like it may be a, a buy seat. Right. And so like you might just have a few at first, but you're, you're, banking on that expand play to be able to kind of pay more for those first few seats, hoping that they'll expand. And then there's run rate. So are you funded or are you a bootstrapped company? And if you, cause you mentioned this, like if you are bootstrapped or if you're like a solopreneur, you probably won't have like the budget to do certain strategies. So that's going to like automatically determine like what type of strategy I can run. And then the last piece that we talked about is, is like to do thought leadership, you have to be a thought leader for that space. You either have to be the thought leader or you have to have someone within your company that's willing to be that, that's willing to set aside the time for that or like get super innovative and go kind of the influencer creator type route where you are paying like the people that are the experts or that are using the product to create that kind of like UGC content for you or be the the host of your podcast, right? So- bunch of different stuff that I just uh, dropped there. But I think like you ran through like all of those different factors to consider when building your content strategy. And so I want to start from the bottom there about when thinking about thought leadership, what resources do you have to have in place?
0: I'm quite kind of egalitarian and democratic when it comes to who can write thought leadership. I'm kind of of the opinion that every company has people within it that have solved a hard problem that other people would benefit from hearing the answer to. So I think it's very, we can have quite a restrictive definition where we think, you know, unless you're a serial founder that's raised X million dollars and, you know, closed, gone to IPO or whatever, you can't be a thought leader. But I think the definition is much more generous and much more broad of that. I like the idea of earned secrets, which is this term that comes from Andreessen Horowitz. But Basically, if you've solved a hard problem and you can share it with other people, that is something you have to thought lead with. You can get that out into the world because other people might not have done that. And so when I think when we write thought leadership for customers, that is what we are trying to look for. What are the experiences that these people have had that other people have not had that are worth sharing that will solve problems What are the perspectives on their industry that they are uniquely qualified to have because they're so immersed in the thing they do every day and they've probably done for 10 years that they are bona fide experts on? Or exactly as you say, actually, if they don't feel like they're the people that can do that, who within their network can we elevate and build our brand in a kind of serendipitous relationship with? Something like the first round review is a really great example of that. It's basically an entire amazing blogging strategy that is built on the backs of loads of really smart founders from companies that first round is invested in. Makes them look good through association and it elevates their portfolio companies as well. So I think, yeah, pretty much anyone that is working in an industry and solving a hard problem has something worth thought leading with. They just sometimes need a little bit of help to get those ideas out and frame them in a way that's gonna be interesting to people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think an interesting point you brought up is almost like segmenting different types of like thought leadership too. So there's what I would call more like generalist thought leadership, which can be stories about funding, like what I've learned from building this business. Right. And that's something that any founder or any kind of like founding member can kind of share is building in public, right? Like that's a a very popular style of like thought leadership right now. And I think there's benefit to that to just bring awareness to your company. So there's that type and then kind of actually there's three. The one that kind of goes underneath that, but it's a little bit different is like generalist in terms of you're an employee at this company. You might not have been like a founding member or helped like build it, but you can talk about what you do every day at that company or just what you do in general, like things that you're passionate about that may have nothing to do with your work or like with the product that's solved. But again, still, still free advertising basically for that company in the awareness front. And then there's this third piece though, that's like, I'm an expert in the problem that I solve, or I'm an expert in this like product that we solve. And so this is, I think like where it can be tricky for people that maybe sell to like uh, a physician, but they don't have a physician in their company, right? Like they have developers, sales teams, marketers. No physicians, though. And so so that's like where it gets tricky of tapping into your in, uh, internal resources, especially if you are bootstrapped or if you, you know, just seed round to be able to hire somebody like that or partner with someone like that without having that type of capital to do thought leadership well. And this is like where I see the argument for things like SEO, right, is it's like and just paid ads, basically like any other type of like uh, content marketing strategy. It's like we really don't have like the resources then to maybe get that done or we don't have the point of view. This is, a, I think, like another blocker maybe for folks is we don't know, we don't have product market fit yet and we're not quite sure like what we want to say yet. And so in the meantime, we can at least like tag on to other existing categories. And that's just like an easier format for most people is like we can sort of like tag on to things that we already know that people are searching for and the problems that we already know that people know that they have while we kind of figure it out ourselves of like, what is our point of view? What is like our exact like target market? And while we're zeroing in on that, we'll do a little bit more of like transactional listicle, maybe like style content. Right. So just curious, like on your thoughts about that and like how you differentiate the two.
0: I love those points. Just to take those two things you said like in order. I totally agree lots of people feel like having a point of view is either hard or it's risky in some cases. You know, there's this idea that thought leadership you have to be a jerk to do it. And I think that's not true and I think the thing people are lacking is basically a set of heuristics to brainstorm what this content can look like, which is exactly what we talked about. You know, those three framings for it if you have that suddenly you go from this blank page where you don't know what the hell you're going to talk about what is even worth sharing in my life to having like a systematic process to reflect and think okay the goal is helping people what out of my personal experience would this target audience find helpful so i think anyone can probably with a bit of help with a few nudges and exercises find a good point of view and the point about yeah selling to medical professionals and not being a doctor totally feel that like we work with loads of companies where we kind of look at the subject matter and the brief and we go okay we're gonna need to take some time just to even work out what this is let alone write something good about it and a lot of the way we approach that if you can't find an SME to talk to you for free and quite often you can like uh, people that spend decades of their life being really nerdy about something quite often like the intrinsic reward that comes from sharing those experiences but even if you can't I think if you are a company that sells to medical professionals and presumably you've got some measure of traction and like some people, some medical professionals are customers, by definition, you have people in your team that must know something about the medical profession. They may not be doctors, but they must understand the processes and the workflows. And they've built a bit of software that helps with those things. So even if you can't necessarily, you know, help them diagnose a really tricky ailment or whatever, there is still knowledge that you possess within that industry, within your company that could probably be thought leadership in some way. And I, I'm i very sympathetic, You know, sometimes simple content, just a bunch of keywords, a bunch of rankings, getting loads of people wholesale to the site is a really good thing to do and you don't always need to overcomplicate it. But I think the number of companies and the number of industries that do have to overcomplicate it is growing just as a virtue of how competitive search is increasingly becoming. There was obviously a time a few years ago where you could write pretty much anything and there was not enough competition and you would rank for it. And you'd get lots of people to your site, even if it was poorly written, if it missed the mark in some area, your content would still generate traffic and sometimes sales as well. But when you've got 20 other companies that are also trying to do that, that maybe are willing to spend a bit more money than you, or maybe they've got slightly better processes. It is really hard to compete on the same terms as those people, especially if they've been published 10 years before your article, and they've got this moat of backlinks and domain authority. I think in those cases, the angle you have to think about is not just, how do I match the search intent? How do I rank for this? How do I provide value? It's also, how do I do it in a different way to anything that other people have published? what do we as a company uniquely have to say on this topic that will make people remember us and will earn a spot within the very competitive search results.
1: Yeah. Like starting with your point of view or starting with like the unique, you know, value differentiator, the thing that you can add um, like has to be at the core of every content strategy. Or else like you will just look like everyone else and you will just like be competing over the scraps like verse creating a new type of category or like a subcategory uh, within your niche. So a few different ways I think to go about that. I think we've done a pretty good job of like covering how to think about thought leadership and how to think about this as like a solopreneur or a consulting type business. And so I'll switch gears a little bit here and talk more about like that SaaS model. So Let's go into SaaS, like product-led, like type model. So in thinking about some of the clients that you work with that kind of fit that mold, how do you approach content with them? What types of things do you bring up and make sure that they are doing in-house and then what types of things that you, are you adding?
0: Yeah, I was talking to somebody at Podio recently, Benjamin, very smart man, and they've recently announced a free product and he was talking through like some of the motivations for that. And he pointed out that basically if you have a free product to offer people the the growth and the traction you're going to see from that is always going to be more than just content alone because what's more valuable you know free blog posts or a free product that does really cool stuff and that was like a bit of a it was a a, amazing framing for me it made me think about this a bit differently because i think the goal then is not to use content as like an acquisition mechanism in its own right it's to support the acquisition done by your product like the product-led growth and i think one one thing we've not covered which is really important to talk about within that particular problem is making users successful with that product because obviously we've been talking so far largely about acquisition getting people to the point where they want to start using something and then we kind of assume that you know onboarding flows take over and they'll find value from the product and that's all good and I can retire from my role as content marketer because my job is done. With product led growth, that's obviously not the case at all because getting them into the product is the first hurdle. The next is making sure they get enough value from it and understand enough of the breadth of use cases available that they are willing to actually pay for it, which is the thing that then really matters. So, a huge role of content marketing in that case is how do you demonstrate the use cases? How do you show people the entire constellation of things they can do with it. Because we've worked with you know companies like Airtable or Zapier in the past, and they are platforms that can do literally anything. Again, not like my humble pen where you, everyone knows how to do with that. If you open up an Airtable database for the first time, it's kind of terrifying. You don't know what to do unless you've come into it with a very specific use case. So a lot of the things we do in those cases are case studies. How have people like you solved the hard problems in their life using our software, our platform? And templates as well, building huge libraries of templates. How do we create something that a new user can copy and paste and accelerate that time to value? And that has the happy consequence of quite often having a ton of search volume associated with it. A lot of the like highest volume posts we've written for customers are how to do X template and Adding in some kind of like, yeah, free download or some product segue there is one of the best things you can do for those kind of companies, I think.
1: Yeah, this is great. I just added uh, to our list of factors to consider. So do you have a broad use case, right? So if you're a product-led company, is, are the use cases pretty broad? And in that case, I've started thinking about this as contextual content. You need more contextual content to kind of like understand how to use the product to be able to get that value out of the product, to be able to truly be like a, a product led company, right? Like without the directions to to use the product, there's only so much you can do in product and so much that I'm gonna put up with in terms of like a guided tutorial in there. They're so like, I need to be able to come in there and use the templates that I either found like through SEO, like you mentioned, or like they are in the product, ideally both, right? So you, you have kind of like this back, back doorway into the product right? And you have like the context that you need to have success in it. And then it's just a matter of like plug and play from there. So I think you summed it up nicely for a product-led of more contextual content, more about like how this product kind of fits into your life and helps your existing workflow versus like it feeling like it's adding a new workflow, which is I think like the biggest barrier that product-led companies run into is like, why do I need another product? Like SaaS is eating the world, right? That's product-led. Uh, I think let's just switch switch gears then again, like to, to sales-led and like how, how sales-led might be a little bit different. I'm going to reference a graphic, a chart that animals made a while back. And for reference for folks listening, Ryan and I were looking for this chart for a while. I could not find it. It must have been like just deleted from like the archives of the internet. I don't know what happened, but there's a chart that was nice that broke down some of these things of like, how to think about content, what channels to prioritize by go-to-market plan or motions. So I want to say for sales-led that it was email was up there, right? Like prioritizing emails because of the need for like direct one-to-one conversations, feeding the sales team. So there's a lot of like gated content happening in sales-led for that reason. And then for product-led, I want to say it was SEO that was recommended first and then that service business it was typically like thought leadership i think was number 1 so going back to sales led like how would you think about prioritizing content for a sales led company
0: well yeah i imagine this was probably something jimmy created this image because this is has jimmy's like ethos all over it and i totally agree with all three of those and in terms of sales led i think we're getting more into the like classic b2b content marketing world. Like this is how I used to think about content marketing. This was like the HubSpot approach where you've got the classic linear funnel stages and you get loads of people in at the top. You have some kind of gating mechanism to capture their details. And then you have this intermediary stage where you're trying to engage with them and nurture them and deliver value and theoretically nudge them ever closer to that point of sale where you can then hand off to the sales team and you've got loads of data about them and what they've engaged with. And theoretically that sets them up for a really good, fruitful sales conversation. I think that makes total sense for a certain type of company, which yeah, the sales led probably more on the enterprise side of things where they have, as you say, a big sales team that has to be fed constantly. This, yeah, I, I guess maybe the interesting thing there was that, um, Certainly, if you listen to a lot of the kind of classic content marketing influencers and companies that do this, I certainly thought this was the only type of content marketing. Every Half of the things I created were SEO content and then gated content with a view to like feeding people through that funnel. And I'm probably seeing the efficacy of that, I think, wane more and more over time, just as people become a bit more savvy about content, our expectations about what is actually worth parting with our personal information have vastly increased because the days of you know me willing to give up 12 pieces of personal data in exchange for some really crappy PDF of a blog post I've already read, those days are long gone. Like My privacy concerns are way, way beyond that now. Um, and I think in most cases, unless you are like a kind of old school enterprise company that needs 20 form fields of information for your sales team to do their thing, then probably gated content is not the best way to think about content marketing these days i think of it there's like the game theory element here which is my best argument against it if you have something valuable and you want to gate it and people have to give away something to get it if somebody else creates something just as valuable and they give it away for free you lose out it's very hard for you to compete with that value proposition so it's as soon as one company's willing to do that i think it kind of the entire playing field is encouraged to do exactly the same, ungate their content, or else spend an immense amount of time on something that is really worth gating and something that can only be had from your company.
1: Nice. You pretty much answered all my follow-up questions for this. I was going to say, you mentioned that it's the old school marketing funnel, right? And so I was going to ask if you thought there's still still merit to that and still kind of have this question of, do you think there's ever a circumstance where gating is the the right play? And how else like can we think about a content motion for sales led companies?
0: I think in terms of when it's worth gating it, probably two reasons. When you have to. So as I say, like some sales orgs are just set up that they're so I mean, this is obviously your world in terms of like Dooley and Salesforce integration, that kind of thing. Some companies are so old school they just need lots of form fields of data and that is just how they will always exist. A lot of our biggest like enterprise companies, they have been doing this for decades and the amount of time it took them to even move from spreadsheets to salesforce means that they're going to be stuck using these processes and tools for the next 50 years probably just from how long it took i guess the other thing is when it's in someone's interest because i think there are use cases for getting content where it's beneficial to people if there's like a big series of content you've created and it's spread across like a dozen pages on the internet Compiling that together into an ebook, maybe a different means of engaging with that, something that can be saved. I see a benefit to the reader there, and I think it's a justifiable use case for that. I just probably wouldn't ask for like 12 bits of data from them. I'd probably try and, if you want to do that, I think maybe the thing to do is get an email from them and then use a data enrichment platform behind the scenes to get the data that you need in a way that's not as invasive and doesn't feel like content gating.
1: Nice. Yeah, I think that's a nice breakdown. The things that I was thinking about it. Because I do go back and forth on like what's the right motion because to call out some companies that I think have done a pretty good job with this is gone. So the classic example of like they have all sorts of sales like templates and they use more of a paid social like type play to promote those. But they also have, I think, premium content like they are able to include data in those pieces that's exclusive to them that helps them justify like I think that motion. So there's there's them i also see this a lot in online marketing and like those uh online like solopreneurs having courses or just gated pieces to kind of get people into their email marketing and then email marketing ends up being like their number one like source of acquisition and so it's like the list building so that was going to be my follow-up question of like how important is email now in a content marketing strategy and how would you think about going about list building
0: yeah, good question. I think email is probably the most important it's ever been, despite you know the kind of industry adage that email is dying that you hear every year and have heard every year for about 10 years. From my experience for animals, especially thought leadership content, I think other people's email lists are one of the biggest distribution channels we have. Because fundamentally, these are creators. They are their product is the newsletter, the curated, thoughtful selection of links and ideas they share every week. And the way they grow their list is by having that be really, really good. So one of the things we've done with customers and ourselves is take a little research project and work out what are the 10 biggest industry newsletters? Who are the like Substack influencers of this industry? And let's build relationships with them. And it doesn't have to be complicated in a lot of cases because they are so hungry for content. It's in both parties' interest to make that relationship work as long as your content is good and it's not just the same tired old SEO stuff. So we do that for animals. We do that for uh, different companies. We've done that in the recruitment industry. Lots of times that works really, really well. I think as well, I really value the animals newsletter and I think it's important for us to create and it's an important content format for us because where else do you have one-on-one interaction with people through content? reading something is obviously like a bit of a monologue and it kind of approaches that but newsletters are a place for actual interaction it's a way you can get in front of people in a less competitive environment maybe the hardest part of that is working out how you stand out from everything now there are so many of them and you hit on a really interesting point which is the friction between giving stuff away for free and gating stuff and keeping it private Because obviously, if you're a new company and you want to grow like a a mailing list or a community or a startup, it's in your interest to give everything away, because every time you give something away, that is a chance for people to find you. It's a mechanism for awareness. But obviously, every time you gate something that's useful for the community and the subscribers, but it doesn't serve that dual purpose of improving distribution. So. If the gong, for example, it's cool that they can do that with premium content, but I'd almost argue that's something that is only accessible to companies that reach a certain size. Because if you have to, if you've got one writer and you're trying to choose between raising awareness or creating valuable gated content for the community you have, you should probably focus on the awareness portion first and get that to like a critical mass.
1: Yeah, that's a really good factor to to throw in here is just like size of company, right? Or stage of company too. Uh, of like can you afford to to gate content because like you said with the games theory of someone else is not going to gate it right like you can find that content somewhere else and so if you believe that all content is accessible now and you can you can find anything you need to know by searching on google then it's it's just harder and harder to to justify a gating at this point so yeah. I think those are all great thoughts. We talked about ACD a little bit. I know you had like some more thoughts on this. So I wanted to make sure we covered up, up on this. How does just like ACD play into your content strategy?
0: I think well, we've kind of largely covered it, I think, in terms of um, it is the like single prime factor that determines yeah how much you can spend, how much you should be willing to spend, how many people you need to get into the business. Um, so yeah, regardless of which channel or which like business model you're interested in, that's, f- ACV is the very first thing I think you should look at.
1: Yeah, I think I think we did cover up on this question pretty well. So I will I will keep going on to category. And we we cut, touched on this a little bit. I think we can go a little bit deeper too of new versus like existing category. This goes back to stage of business, right? And like awareness versus unawareness. Um, but you know, companies that have a clear category that they slotted to versus companies that are trying to do something completely innovative. How is that going to affect how you go to
0: market with your content? I've been trying to write a blog post about this for about two years, and I've never quite got it right. But um, I like the framing of you are either a zero to one product. So you are creating something from scratch that has never existed before, or you are a one to end product. So the product already exists, and the market is now being filled with other similar products. And obviously, they are two very different states of the world that you have to operate in and content plays a different role in each if you are in an existing category you are kind of lucky in the sense that you have all of the hard work of your competitors to build off so because of the marketing of other companies people know what your category is called there's probably a name for the thing that you do you can write content about how you are different to those existing competitors and how you're better than them and draw direct comparison. And quite often, the result of that is there is also established search volume as well. Like lots of companies do, we call them like competitor alternative pages, where some of the highest volume searches a company will have is Podia versus Teachable or whatever, you know, those two platforms in opposition. So, although you're obviously competing against other companies, you at least have access to an established way to market and verbiage and knowledge around what you do. And for those, I'd probably think SEO, probably the best channel to do, because you've got all that latent search volume, you've got all that messaging you can talk about, that's fantastic. In the case of a new category, you don't have any of that advantage. In most cases, there will not be a name for what you do. People will need to be persuaded that what you do is useful or interesting, and there won't be a bunch of search volume, because you are thinking about an established problem in a way that other people have never thought about and probably have never searched around. So then I think that's when thought leadership becomes much more interesting, because you are trying to educate people about the problem in the first place. You're trying to build credibility for you as somebody in your field or your industry. And because you don't have loads of keywords to distribute that content, you probably have to index on social distribution or email distribution or partnering up with communities and doing it that way.
1: Yeah, I think that's a that's a great uh, breakdown of uh, you can either piggyback on what's already being done because there is already... Uh, category there is already a frame of reference basically for people to think about what you do or like you have to build that frame of reference for people you have to like contextualize it for people and do more of that uh, category creation work so great breakdown I know we're, we're close to time here we could keep going on this for a while but I'll cap it at this next question of how do you know it's time to add another channel so you figured out like the first few channels the first like few content strategies to start thinking about how do you know like it's time to to branch out and kind of like stack that growth
0: the way i tend to think about prioritization of channels or strategies is through a kind of uh maslow's hierarchy of needs but applied to content marketing so that kind of like classic psychological triangle concept where you know, in order to worry about social problems in your life, you have to have food to eat and you have to have a roof over your head. And you can't worry about your friends until you have those basic requirements met. And I think that's useful for content marketing. It's very tempting to go like, hey, we want brand awareness and we want all this amazing thought leadership content. But quite often there are more basic foundational problems that have to be solved to allow you to do that whether that's generating the growth you need to warrant that whether it's getting the money you need to do that or whether it's proving your ability as a content marketer to skeptical managers or company leaders so quite often we talk to companies and we talk to them and the first thing they have to do is just prove that content marketing is a viable strategy in their industry because the amount of times companies assume that it is is kind of mind-numbing so quite often in that case the thing you want to do is just as efficiently as possible, sell something with content marketing. So in that case, we'd probably do like a bit of bottom of funnel content. What is like the keyword that is closest to the problem you solve? Or is there a particular sales conversation that your sales reps are having over and over again, and they're struggling to close, that we can write a bit of content to make that conversation a bit more compelling, a bit more interesting, and a bit more credible. And then beyond that, you start unlocking the Higher levels of the hierarchy. So, maybe you want loads of SEO traffic, but actually your domain authority is terrible. You're a brand new company. You don't, you can't rank for anything because you've got like five backlinks to your whole site. So instead of writing a bunch of SEO content, which is probably not going to get many backlinks, like how often do people link to a really boring what is article or a how to post? You should probably pick that one goal and go as directly and as hard for it as you can, and create content specifically just to build links. So that might be like a benchmark report, some kind of data aggregation, maybe like a really spicy contrarian opinion that you want to share and generate some discussion. So I think yeah, generally thinking, what is the most immediate, pressing, hardest problem you have in mind? Have we solved that? If we have, let's move on to the next problem and the next type of content. And just another point around this that I think is useful. I published a case study recently about one of our customers, a company called 360 Learning, and they are amazing at all aspects of content. Joey, who's our point of contact, basically brought us in as the first thing that she did. And we helped her with SEO. So we built like an organic engine for their growth. And we did a good job. But the cool thing about that was that gave her content skeptical CEO the fodder, the trust to let Joey do whatever the hell she liked with content, because she proved she could hit those core pipeline metrics. So as a result, she's done more interesting things like podcasts. They've even done a docu series where they actually filmed her onboarding at the company and like made it into a whole video series. All stuff which is really hard to justify unless you have those core pipeline metrics in place and you are generating new business from your content.
1: Yeah, yeah, I love that. Uh, I love that you brought up uh, the Maslow's like heart hierarchy into this and Maslow and just thinking about like cover your bases first, right? Like making sure that like you are hitting like the the goals that you were hired to to hit before like uh branching out and before like chasing the next uh uh shiny object so yeah so i can we can kind of uh wrap up there i don't want to keep you too long get the hit that one minute mark so um where can people find you
0: well as you pointed out i spend probably too much time on linkedin so i'm on at thinking underscore slow and other than that the animals blog is the best place or the animals newsletter if people aren't subscribed uh, we've been a little bit quiet for a while, just because we've been working on some internal stuff. But I am back on that marketing business again, and we have a whole bunch of content going out in the next few weeks, including a few experiments and cool stuff that I think might be useful to people that, yeah, are thinking about the future of content marketing. So yeah, check out the uh, Animals blog.
1: Perfect. Well, I can vouch for Ryan. He shares some some pretty uh, interesting uh, approaches about content marketing and just about life on Twitter. So follow them there, follow them on LinkedIn too, and check out animals if you're listening to this. All right. Cheers, Ryan. We'll talk soon.
0: Yeah. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to Content Logistics. This episode is produced by Motion, a done-for-you B2B podcasting agency for busy marketers. If you liked what you heard, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify,
0: or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.